This podcast is by G. Wayne Miller for the Providence Journal. We use the term health equity. Uh, it's often not fully understood what that means, uh, but I've taken to heart the opportunity to be the voice for those that may not have a voice uh, for themselves. The most uh, vulnerable uh, populations, those who are overlooked or uh, disregarded. And having an institution uh, like public health to um, really have individuals like that at the forefront of what we are looking to accomplish, whether it's making sure that um, an HIV test is available uh, during pregnancy, regardless of your race or your immigration status or your insurance uh, status or it's um, being able to ensure that with the uh, opioid epidemic that we have unfortunately been facing um, as somewhat of a syndemic, which is the term that we often use when you see you know, an epidemic, pandemic, and um, so many of the challenges that are occurring all simultaneously. Uh, being able to be part of a leadership team uh, with Dr. Gannam and, and so many others throughout the state uh, who uh, come together in an interdisciplinary format to tackle what's needed in addressing um, opioids as uh, uh, an addiction epidemic that we have been facing. You know, an, another key and being able to do that for those who may not have the voice to do so um, for themselves. Um, I've referred to health equity as, um, regardless of the zip code you're from, making sure that you have access to living the healthiest life you can live in the healthiest community you can live in. Uh, because for me, that sets the stage of how much work we still have to do. Um, being a native of Brooklyn, New York, um, New York City certainly gives the example that we see throughout the country. You know, you can walk a block or change a zip code or, you know, you know, just go a few miles up the road and see totally different set of living conditions that directly impact someone's quality of life and the type of community uh, that they're in and therefore their health outcome and being able to achieve the equity that's needed, meeting people where they are, making sure that they have the voice that they need to receive the, um, the benefits that they deserve you know, is a critical piece of uh, uh, public health and uh, being able to join alongside those within the department and partners outside of the department, the departments who have that same belief and understanding uh, has been rewarding for me and uh, serves as an encouragement because of the work that we still have yet to do before us and knowing that we could gather more and more folks of that um, like mindset to really help make the changes that we know are needed. Yeah, I, I remember when you kind of set up and then really dug into the health equity zones and across Rhode Island you know, these zones that we did extra work in and listened to the communities and helped drive change in a way that was centered in community identified needs and the way that you created trust 
by doing that served as a great exemplar for many of us. I will also say your work on opioids as an emergency physician, right, has been on the front lines of the uh, opioid use disorder epidemic and certainly opioid overdoses and deaths in this state. Dr. Alexander Scott really led us in the nation in setting up levels of care across the state. And continually we were on the front lines in terms of trying and setting up systems for best practice. And I'm going to toot her horn a little bit because what she did to me is set up a scaffolding to allow others to thrive and take leadership in their own way, in their own communities, which is a very rare skill set in a leader. That you did not stand out in front taking all the credit. You created the system through which others could, could go and do the work in whatever way made most sense to them. So, which then takes us to COVID. <laughs> Talk about setting up the scaffolding, holy cow. Um, right, I remember I was actually working in the emergency department on the night that we took care of the first patient who a few days later you announced had been diagnosed with COVID. Uh, his story is public, so I can talk about it. I'm not violating HIPAA. Um, it was a man who had been on a trip, uh, a school trip with his kids in Italy and came into our emergency department at the Miriam. It's something we've been prepping for, thanks to Dr. Alexander Scott, for, for a bit. Um, and, and I just remember that moment of, oh my God, it's here, right? It, it has, we knew, we knew it was going to come, but it was very real. And um, I remember having a conversation with one of my ICU docs that night who had a little baby and was trying to decide if she should keep working in the ICU or whether she should call in coverage because there was so little knew about how to protect herself at that point. And the world was awash with fear, and you stepped up. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about that unexpected stepping up, but in retrospect, you've been preparing for it for so long. Those early pandemic days and, and, and what you saw as those biggest foci or, or areas of success. Yeah, it's amazing to reflect on that uh, time frame. You know, March 1st, 2020, mm -hmm was our uh, first case and um, as you mentioned you know at that point we had had several weeks of uh, activating our incident command system to be ready uh, really gearing up for um, what we had understood <laughs> and so that was based on what our experiences were with the previous uh, pandemic in 2009 where we were having 24 seven, um, you know, days in the department, in our department operations uh, center, uh, and where a, a tremendous amount of um, preparation also goes into the concept of crisis communications. Uh, and early on in my years of becoming a state health official and certainly throughout that journey, I have always had a tremendous amount of respect for uh, the communications realm. Uh, those who are writers in communications, those who understand the importance of being transparent, of, of being genuine, of um, rapid in terms of your turnaround and your ability to explain and um, respond to the concerns 
that are going on and uh, demonstrating empathy in uh, doing so. And so uh, those are qualities that I uh, believe in and had applied uh, as a physician and had practiced uh, early on with the prior pandemic and knew we're going to be critical uh, going into this one, knowing the tremendous amount of unknowns uh, that exist. Uh, so um, having that be uh, something that I believed in and um, uh, relied on for you know me as an individual uh, personally, I uh, sought to have that be my guide. You know, as we were approaching uh, the the unknowns, the uncertainties, the stress, and uh, you know the tremendous uh, responsibility that we were taking on, uh, and having the leadership team statewide, uh, I will always honor and appreciate uh, Governor Gina Raimondo, her brilliance, her tenacity, her uh, um, uh, endless <laughs> energy, um, and ability to um, uh, really put all of those qualities into, she was almost born for uh, that moment and being able to be on the same team uh, with her and the colleagues that she attracted uh, definitely gave us the uh, encouragement to know even if we don't know what's happening or, or why we have the tools and the ingredients to um, and, and the heart you know to help uh, make sure we do the best we can with what we have in uh, uh, the decision making. So that was always uh, an encouragement to me and something that I say for Rhode Islanders is a, a critical piece that you want to you know, make sure that makes or breaks any type of experience in these types of uh, crisis moments. And one of the things that folks might not be aware of, but early in that, in those first weeks of the pandemic of March, and then again, as we get ready for rolling out vaccines, one of the really cool things that Dr. Alexander Scott, who Governor Raimondo did, was set up these work groups. So it really kind of took a, um, a lesson from business, and we did sprints on these really intense issues. So we had a tech work group, we had a testing work group, and we worked. You know, they brought in volunteers from the private sector, from academia, as well as support from the Department of Health to all work together, create these really quick trusting partnerships and relationships and then just let us go. And it meant that, again, we could be first in the nation in a lot of stuff because they kind of saw beyond you and Governor Raimondo and saw beyond the typical process and said, this is a moment where we have to work differently. It pushed us, for sure. It was not a typical way of doing government public health, but it was essential in setting up so many of us. I mean, I remember um, early on working with the National Guard, with Salesforce, with we could chat with this like, whole group of people so we could set up a real-time contact tracing system that wouldn't overwhelm our volunteers from the National Guard, many of whom had no medical experience. And of course, what exactly we were looking for and what exactly we were telling the people who were on isolation or who were no contacts was changing almost day by day. And again, you set up this infrastructure that allowed that to happen and then to impact the lives of Rhode Islanders in a way that enhanced equity. 
And I just, it, it was, I took so many leadership lessons from, from getting to work with that, with your team um, during that experience. And I actually wanted to go a little deeper into equity and vaccinations because I think when I think back on our success stories and our setting an exemplar for the rest of the nation, that to me was one of the big ones. For folks who may not be from Rhode Island, do you mind filling them in on how you make sure that we have equity in our distribution of vaccines? Absolutely. That um, was a, a pretty tremendous uh, journey. I recall discussing with our uh, state health official colleagues from throughout the, the country and uh, knowing that everyone had a different variation of the challenge uh, to face. And one of the things that we decided here in Rhode Island, similar to uh, what I shared earlier regarding equity, was really focus on who are the individuals that are at highest risk of uh, being hospitalized or of dying from COVID. Regardless of where they were from, who they were, what their um, voice was or their positioning was, if we focused on how to keep people alive and keep them out of the hospital, that could help be our consistent guide. Um, and that within itself um, really served as the equity lens, meeting people where they are, particularly those who are most vulnerable, and having a particular understanding about why the people who were um, challenged with highest risk of being hospitalized and highest risk of dying uh, why that was occurring and recognizing the <coughs> living conditions and the community environment that set the stage for that um, really helped feed into why addressing <coughs> those living conditions or determinants of health as we refer to them as because where you live, where you work, where you uh, go to school, um, where you are able to be physically active, uh, all of the, the quality of those uh, availabilities to you determines your health outcomes, more so than what happens in the examination room, uh, whether it's an 80% of your health outcomes are determined by those uh, living conditions. And so when we had not done enough of what we have been working on through our health equity zones and through so many of the other um, efforts that we've had to address health equity, um, it gets displayed when you have any type of uh, crisis, the daily crises that occur in uh, you know certain uh, communities or this unprecedented uh, pandemic. And so uh, understanding that background really became the driver for why we needed to stay focused, regardless of the voices and those that had the influence and those who were scared and were frustrated, which we understood. Let's all focus together on um, keeping as many people alive as we can and keeping as many people out of the hospital as we can. And so that's how, with that equity lens, we started our multi-phase vaccination campaign. The first phase of which 
focused on targeting those most at-risk populations. Um, and um, being meticulous and detail-oriented with a limited number of vaccines to make sure that we could um, reach them most effectively. Uh, so that you know, took that time, but it also led to the outcomes where we were among the top states that had the quickest drop in um, uh, individuals who were dying because of COVID or were hospitalized because of COVID. And then set the stage for us to be able to uh, then uh, move into our second phase, which was mass vaccination uh, and getting to as many um, people as possible while continuing that focus on those who were at uh, highest risk. So that is something that um, you know we were proud of accomplishing. We wanted to do it even better, uh, but um, certainly um, uh, to accomplish what we could and, and now have a, you know one of the states with among the highest vaccination rates that hopefully are benefiting the folks now. Indeed. Uh, I'm pretty shift that I work in the emergency department. I can tell you that although COVID cases are up in our state, our hospitalizations are staying relatively steady. And, and it is thanks to the vaccinations and the boosters. And I, I, I really, you know, one of the things that impressed me about that equity work was not just the North Star that you followed, but also your ability to go from the North Star down to the ground game. I think that one of the things in public health, many of us get stuck in the details and in the grounding, like really kind of in the trees. Others can do the forest really well, right? Like lay out the big picture vision, the great kind of large aspirational stuff. But to be able to pivot between the two is what creates a truly successful public health response. With vaccines being a great example, we can talk about equity, we can set up systems, we can log the importance of having vaccines distribu distributed to those who are at highest risk at the right time. But if we don't also do the work of having the conversations of setting up our community-based organizations to be able to understand why vaccines are needed and where to get them, to provide the various services that allow people to overcome whatever their personal barriers are to getting vaccines, whether it's kind of the door-to-door -door stuff that you all did or the mass vaccination centers for the folks for whom that was more appropriate, the multilingual communication, the deep partnerships that you had with our community leaders, um, I just, I, for those who are interstate, but also for those who aren't, who are in public health, to me, that's one of the strongest takeaways about what has determined what makes a great response to COVID versus a fine response, is that ability to do both. Um, which takes me to leadership lessons. So, you and I have talked a lot over the last two years as we try to figure out each next step and next step. And one of the things about being in the midst of a crisis is that you actually have no idea which crisis is going to land on your door next, right? You think you're figuring out a thing, and then the thing changes dramatically. <laughs> and you always have a centeredness to your approach to this crisis. And I wonder if you mind sharing with our audience, but also with me, because it always gives me kind of hope and courage how you make it through. What, what are your kind of guiding principles and, and North Stars and the things that you hold on to in that crisis moment? 
lost my father, who suddenly uh, passed away unexpectedly. Um, and uh, he, I didn't know that, but he was going on to get a, a PhD in economics. And uh, I learned later in med school that when I was a, a toddler, he would say to people, she's going to be a doctor someday. And I never felt the pressure of it or even knew that, um, but did ultimately take that path. And uh, I do attribute that journey to helping me keep things in perspective. When things, the sky is falling and, uh, you know, uh, things feel like they're just going completely out of whack, you know, that notion of I'm safe, uh, I have someone who loves me, you know, I have uh, you know, someone here in my life, you know, surrounding me, those types of things help, uh, you know, keep that central point and that grounding going. Now I have a uh, wonderful husband and a uh, young little guy who uh, was perfect for keeping me grounded in the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> uh, and uh, totally got away with just wonderful late nights. I, and, and here they are. <laughs> able to enjoy mom being on the phone at 10, uh, you know, o'clock at night um, while uh, uh, learning and growing and being resilient and um, still thriving as well. So that type of um, foundation, I'd say, allowed me to, you know, take a deep breath with each next step, reach out to colleagues and, um, you know, go forward with the best that we could do. I mean, we all have that in our lives. Thank you. I'm going to transition up a little bit um, from the COVID discussion to what comes next. I think COVID is obviously very much still here. Anyone who tells you it's not, someone you should not listen to, it is still a very real disease. But and the things that we did early in the pandemic are not the same things we should be doing today. And we put a ton of very well-deserved emphasis on COVID early on, knowing right, that we were trying to your kind of North Star of avoiding unnecessary hospitalizations and deaths. Where that balance lies in terms of what we have to do to avoid hospitalizations and deaths, early on it had to be all about COVID. But now, as you and I have had discussions, right, there are lots of problems lots of health problems in society, and we're simmering along and even getting worse right before COVID hit. And because we so necessarily had to put so much emphasis on COVID for particularly that first kind of year before we had vaccines, we're seeing a lot of folks who are struggling in other ways, you know, whether the decrease in pediatric regular vaccinations for kids, decrease in other types of preventive care, skyrocketing rates of opioid overdose, Again, none of those were caused by COVID. They were trends that were already on their way, but the, the trend line kind of bent and, and got worse um, over the last year and a half. And then I think of the last part that you and I have had discussions about is kind of maintaining that trust in public health and in our ability to communicate and to overcome. I, I, I talk a lot about misinformation and disinformation, and I think they are very, very real things, but I also think it's easy to say, oh, it's just disinformation. 
a lot of times it's actually not trust. It's just a lack of trust. Rather than there are bad agents out there, but a lot of times it's also just absence of information. That's my list of what I spend a lot of time thinking about. I'd be interested in what you spend your time thinking about. Um, and maybe in the last you know, 15, 20 minutes, engaging in a discussion about where we go from here, both for Rhode Island, but also in your new national role and your ability to help strengthen state and territorial health officers across the country, all of whom are struggling. For, for those who don't know, the turnover rate in public health officers across the country right now is unprecedented. The threats against state and territorial health officers are unprecedented. Protests outside of homes, horrible things that people perceive, you know, just people are mean and it's exhausting, especially when you're doing something for the greater good. And so I'm sure you have thoughts about kind of how to strengthen that as well. Yeah. yeah sure. So um, I am thinking through it along with you and, and what opportunities we have for going forward to the future. Uh, have a, a, a few categories of uh, concepts that I believe to be critical. Uh, one is leadership. Um, I've truly seen how necessary it is to have strong leadership, uh, you know, across the board, you know, at the state level for where you want to achieve what's needed, um, having individual or at the national level, at the local level, having leadership that understands the importance of uh, what is done with public health, with uh, public service, uh, with data, with science, um, uh, with the, the common good, how necessary it is to have folks, individuals in that role that either knows and appreciates and understands that or recognizes that they may not, but are willing to surround themselves with individuals who can help them or fill those gaps but to have an appreciation for that makes or breaks an entire response, makes or breaks what our future beholds, um, makes or breaks how it is experienced by you all um, as uh, individuals in that community. So that's something that um, I believe strongly in continuing to emphasize and share for members of the community who can have that impact and ensuring that our leaders throughout the country uh, understand how necessary it is to um, align with uh, the importance of public health, uh, the importance of the common good, of data, of science, and use that appropriately and effectively to inform how to go forward in the endless number of unknowns and uncertainties that can occur. If you have someone that is grounded in those basic ingredients, that's going to be the, the guiding force that we need uh, to, um, um, you know, just be equipped 
to face what we need to face. Without that, your hands are tied behind your back, you know, there are all sorts of um, additional challenges. So that's one huge category because, you know, you could be ready with the best technology if you don't have that leadership in place and ready to go or, or understanding the value. Um, it, uh, it really challenges the entire system. Uh, the other is um, what public health can continue to learn from this experience and do better. Um, I spoke earlier about communication and the value and importance of it. Um, prior to the pandemic, I used to speak to our department about figuring out how to become multilingual and not to just speak public health of the leaves. <laughs> not everyone understands, you know, what determinants of health or health equity or, um, you know, uh, uh, being able to do the, the laboratory services that we do, where so many of the, the the things that are done to keep people alive every single day from a public health uh, perspective. Uh, but we need to figure out how to engage partners, members of the public, from non-traditional sectors by speaking a language that they understand. And uh, that is one of the things public health needs to continue to advance in. It's something um, Dr. Rani is an, an, an expert in and extremely uh, successful in the guiding light that makes Rhode Island proud uh, so often. Uh, but that's something that you know I'll look forward to us working together on helping to ensure that we do a better job from a public health perspective. The other is just continuing to be able to operationalize. What we learned with this uh, pandemic is public health wasn't previously resourced or equipped to respond to the scale of the pandemic that we responded to. And um, having the proper communication with the proper non-traditional partners so that there's the proper understanding of why public health needs to be better resourced for the future is um, you know, a, a critical piece. How do we value this workforce who uh, it's truly dealing with PTSD from you know the type of sacrifice that was uh, made. Not everyone has an amazing husband and, and family who's willing to sacrifice just as much and still support. People were really you know genuinely challenged through this. And then you know at, instead of being supported or valued, you know uh, the work setting or governmental setting may do the opposite and that is something that we have to change and that starts with that public recognition of um, the type of sacrifice uh, that is being made and then the last is this you know new era with the unfortunate incidents of george floyd the trauma of what we see that's occurring again and again um, with structural and systemic racism and the need to be uh, able to confront it openly and address it, um, incorporating uh, gun violence into that and um, how we uh, really are, are holistic and open and honest and clear about true changes in our society that need uh, to be made. 
uh, that public health has known for a long time, but uh, we need to continue to figure out how to more, particularly as a chief health strategist that many uh, public health practitioners refer to public health as, uh, bringing people together to move the needle, to really execute on making the improvements and changes that we know are needed in this country. Thank you. You know, and one of the things that as I listen to you talk about those various categories is the recognition that the problems are so vast. You know, do I work on firearm injury today or opioids or structural racism? But they're also so interconnected. And one of the things that you set up at the Department of Health and that I know that you're continuing to do in the new role is the ability for folks to go deep. You set up systems, right, where there are the verticals, where folks can say, this is something that I am going to be good at and that I am going to be unflinching in understanding the root causes of and working slowly, slowly to change them. Sometimes there are miracles in public health, like vaccines, but a lot of the time, it's more of that day in and day out effort. And it's the pivot of saying, well, this one isn't gonna work today, whether it's a policy change or a new medication that you can't get your whole, you know, your hands on, or say a COVID test, which somehow magically doesn't work, right? It would have been great if we had lots of COVID tests early on in the pandemic. We didn't. So you pivot and say, well, what's the next best thing? How can I do my best to reach that North Star for that issue, knowing the limited resources, slowly shifting the public opinion? And, and I wonder, you know, one of the things that I've been hearing a lot, and, and we're trying to do a lot of it at the School of Public Health with setting up these interdisciplinary teams, with bringing new voices and faces on board, and strengthening those that were already there to go out and have impact. But as they engage in conversations, not just within our school, but also across the country, one of the things that I'm hearing a lot is just exactly what you said, that, that post-traumatic stress, that you know we have just come through two of the hardest years, and it feels like it keeps going. And I think in kind of the final minutes, I would love to hear your take on, on kind of what still gives you hope. And for those in the audience who may or may not be involved in public health, and how we each can have a small role to play. Um, because I know that both you and I truly believe that this is public health. It's not a director of a department of health or an academic dean at a school or even public health. It is each one of us every day. And so what gives me hope? Uh, and, and it is a, a, a challenge, you know, uh, these days, um, but knowing that the uh, the greater good <laughs> um, uh, will persevere in terms of um, you know being the voice for those that may not have a voice uh, for themselves, um, recognizing those who are most vulnerable and the importance of advocating for them and approaching it from a public health perspective um, with a sense of humility about what else we can do better to be more effective. We sometimes need to sit back and uh, strategize about how to uh, take a more uh, deliberate and intentional uh, step forward 
particularly when you have the types of challenges that uh, are occurring in our society each day. Um, but the hope I have is, you know, the the future. You know, those who are um, the young minds, uh, who are hungry, who do have that um, focus on the sense of, you know, the common good and humanity and how we can take a particular step. It's not about someone's race or ethnicity or their religion or where they were born, uh, but it's about the environments that they have access to and addressing those uh, conditions and facing that together and being um, intentional about how we improve those conditions improve those conditions and make it so that there is a level playing field um, for individuals who are born you know, in various parts of the country. We have a lot of work to do to get there, and we need to dismantle things like structural racism. We need to address economic advancement and uh, development. Uh, we need to ensure that we have leadership that understands the value of where we need to go and the ingredients that are necessary to uh, get us there. And as you mentioned, just that continual, steady perseverance day to day is uh, what I'm hopeful about um, ultimately triumphing in the long run. Thank you. Well, I can say that for me, you have been part of what gives me hope over the last couple of years. And I think for all of us, the ability to find those with whom we work who provide that hope and support, because no matter what it is we're doing, there's going to be up days and down days and new crises. And being able to work side by side or call from afar on someone who may have experienced some version of it before um, makes all the difference. So Nicole, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you for joining us today.